Well, we are in Genesis 8 and chapter 9 this morning. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me there. I've recently been reading a book by Pete Lohman. It's called A Long Way East of Eden. Subtitle, Can God Explain the Mess We're In? Remember that after the fall of Genesis 3, after God confronted Adam and Eve in their sin and doled out curses and difficulties in light of that sin, God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden eastward. And that is literal geography. We think they actually did go eastward. But that is a mental marker for us as well. There's a theological significance to it. Hence, Loman's title, A Long Way East of Eden. That's where we live. There's no going back to the garden. There is a way forward for God's people, but there's no going back to the garden. We've been learning in the book of Genesis that the Bible on the whole, but especially the book of Genesis, helps us make sense of this good yet broken world that we live in and experience every day. Why is there a measure of order and beauty and sweetness and truth and goodness and love that's observable in this world? It's because our good God made it that way. That was his good design. He's a good creator. And why is there hurt in this world and shame and brokenness and and evil and, and sadness? It is because this is a sinful world in a sin cursed world. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And Genesis spells this all out for us. Genesis tells us how it went down, Genesis tells us why things are the way they are. Genesis 6 described a time a long time ago when things got especially bad. Chapter 6, verse 5 needs to be kept in mind in later chapters where their evil and violence were universal, rampant, and constant in people's minds and actions. And so God decided to intervene in a dramatic and unprecedented way And we call it the flood. Humanity had so destroyed God's creation and God's created ways that God would destroy almost all of humanity except one family from whom he would begin a whole new humanity. But unlike the first creation, and unlike that first family in Genesis 1 and 2, who were created, of course, in a pre-fall world, this family, Noah's family, would, of course, begin again in a post-fall world. And that matters. In other words, even though after the flood, God was making a new humanity, a fresh start, it was a fresh start still with sinners. And so Noah and his family step off the boat into a whole new desolated world to begin again, and there God would reestablish many of the principles and patterns that he already put in this world back in Genesis 1. But those principles and patterns would now need to be recontextualized for a post-fall and post-flood world. That's what our passage shows us. Would you read with me Genesis 8, starting in verse 20, and I'll read to chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, 
While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Well, in our passage, there are four interrelated themes that should grab our attention. They're familiar themes, but they are now, you could say, new or renewed in this post-fall and post-flood world. And the first theme is sacrifice. We have a new sacrifice in verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and the birds and all, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now once again, we need to contrast what we see in our Bibles with the practices of the ancient Near East pagans that the Israelites, those first readers of the book of Genesis, would have been very familiar with. In the ancient Near East creation myths, human beings were created to work for the gods because the gods were so tired. In the ancient Near East flood stories, the flood came because the people were noisy and too many, and the flood ceased because the gods got hungry and needed someone to make them food. In the paganism of the ancient Near East religions, one would make sacrifices to the gods in hopes to appease them because the gods were unpredictable. They were moody. You didn't know when they would lose their temper. That's what you have in the ancient Near East. But then you have the Bible right in the middle of those religions. And after the crazy experience of the flood, what would Noah do next? Noah could have gotten off the boat and said a word of resentment to God, that God destroyed everything and made them go through that year-long trial of living in a boat with one family and a lot of animals. Noah could have gotten off the boat and done what the later pagans did and make sacrifices to those gods trying to appease them that they wouldn't get 
angry like that again. But instead, Noah got off the boat and immediately turned to God in thanks and praise to God for his salvation, for his mercy, for his rescue, for his goodness. He made sacrifices. I know sacrifices seem strange to us today, and in many ways they should, right? So if you're new to this church or if you're new to Christianity, uh, just so you know, we don't do animal sacrifices. You don't need to hold your dog a little tighter while you're around us, okay? We just need to make that clear. But we do, even though it seems strange as we read it in the Bible, we know that there was a time when God was pleased to receive those tangible, costly expressions of thanks and praise for who he is and what he's done. And that's a especially important in view of how that theme of sacrifice gets developed later in the Bible. We think of sacrifices as not just an expression of thanks and praise, but in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, you, you have sacrifices in view of substitution, right? In place of sinners. You think of the Passover, which... The blood of the innocent lamb was put on the doorpost of the house so that the angel of death that night would pass over those houses. It was an expression of their faith. And of course, we think as Christians of what happens with this theme of sacrifice when we get to the New Testament. Jesus becomes the final and perfect and complete sacrifice. And so this language of sacrifice and offering and it being fragrant, that's all used for Jesus in the New Testament. Ephesians 5, verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews 10 says we have been sanctified or purified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And then in light of that mercy, on account of Jesus' sacrifice for us, a passage like Hebrews, uh, rather Romans 12, can say, in light of that mercy, now present your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. This is your reasonable and acceptable worship. And Paul can even speak of the gift that the Philippian church provided for him, a financial support. He says it was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Noah's expression of thanks and praise to a God who saves in rescue so marvelously is one thing, and uh, as it goes for us, in light of the perfect substitutionary sacrifice sacrifice of Christ where he saves us to the uttermost, how much more should we not just offer a bird or an animal but ourselves as living sacrifices to him? And in doing so, he is pleased. It smells good, as it were. And all that in response to grace, just as Noah showed us. Second theme is promise. There's a new promise in light of that sacrifice. The promise, verse 21, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, God doesn't look back at the flood with regret, but he does look ahead with a promise that he won't destroy on that scale, in that way, ever again. As he'll word it in chapter 9, verse 11, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will he destroy the earth with water. So this is a promise in view of Noah's sacrifice. Notice the language. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that's when the Lord said, I will never again curse the earth. 
That's a principle like sacrifice that's drawn out and developed in the rest of the Bible. God's grace is on account of sacrifice. But notice this is also a promise that's in view, not just of sacrifice, but in view of human sinfulness. Do you see that in verse 21? I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That is astounding to me. The very reason for the flood of judgment back in chapter 6, man's heart was only evil continually, is now the basis for a, a new promise that God won't destroy the earth like that again. And how can it be both? I don't know. But these are the ways of our God. Behold the goodness and severity of our God. It is amazing grace. It is astounding mercy. God was right and just to bring a flood of judgment upon a sinful world. And God was kind and gracious to save one family and from them produce a whole new humanity. And God was merciful to promise that he henceforth will hold back his judgment on humanity actually in view of their sinful hearts. So I suspect an implication that we should draw is that if God had not promised here to never flood the earth with his judgment again, he'd have done it countless times since. It would just keep happening. But we have a great promise, a new promise. But, but a promise with a limitation. You see verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night, that stuff won't cease. It'll keep continuing while the earth remains. There's just a hint that though this is a promise to last a very long time, in fact, as long as the earth remains, it is a promise that eventually will give out when the earth as we know it no longer remains. Remember us connecting this to 2 Peter 3 a week or two ago? Remember in 2 Peter 3, Peter picks up the flood story and applies it to scoffers and skeptics in his day who would deny that there would be an end-time judgment ever coming. They say it's, it's all been the same. It's uniformity to and fro. It's going to be the same going forward. Jesus won't interrupt it. Look how long it's been. But Peter says they overlooked the fact that the Lord destroyed the earth once before. And though we don't know when, and though it may seem like this world is just humming along, there is coming a day when time is up. And that's not inconsistent with the promise here in Genesis 8 or the covenant in chapter 9. There God said he wouldn't destroy the earth with water, but there is coming a day, according to 2 Peter, when he will destroy and renew this earth with fire. That's what's coming. And so God's patience, God's delay of that final day should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to trust in Jesus and to look at him Look to him for our salvation. And God's patience today, as many millennia later as we are from the stories of Noah, I don't know how long, but it's been a long time, God's patience all that time has been owing to this promise and covenant in our passage of Genesis. But a third theme we could call a new slash renewed blessing. The theme of blessing is there in chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now why did I say it's a new slash 
renewed blessing? Well, I'll explain that as we go through it. Hold on and and just tuck it away for now. Notice that this is practically the exact same wording of Genesis 1, verse 22, where God spoke basically the same words to Adam and Eve. In fact, there are a number of connections between Genesis 9 and the creation account of Genesis 1. And that's all very intentional, of course. Remember, the flood was a hard reboot on creation. In many ways, God was now in Genesis 8 and 9, God was starting over. And so Noah is presented to us as like a new kind of Adam involved in a new kind of creation. Remember we saw last week where the flood was a kind of decreation. There was like the undoing of creative work from Genesis 1 as God brought the flood upon the earth. But now in chapter 9, after the flood, God is doing a kind of recreation. And that's why it sounds so familiar. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Our gracious God was not giving up on his humanity. Even though the last time they began multiplying on the face of the earth, chapter 6, verse 1, and their sin was multiplying along with them, God was still now, in chapter 9, he's still intent on filling the earth with his image bearers. And so he blessed them for this no small task. He blessed them. And they would need his blessing now even more than Adam and Eve did in Genesis 1 because Noah and his family live in a post-fall, post-flood world. That's a rough and tumble world. So back to my introduction. Genesis 9 Shows God beginning again, creating a new humanity. That's why it's reminiscent of Genesis 1. But in a fallen world, some adjustments to the blessing and the the creation mandate, as it's called, some adjustments need to be made. That's why it's new slash renewed. And God gives here specific directions and limitations for how human beings are to relate to the animals and how they're to relate to each other. First, the animals. Verse 2 says, the animals will be in fear of you. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. This is something different than the pre-fall world, apparently. There is now a break in the relationship between man and beast. We get the impression that before the fall, the created order didn't push against the creation mandate given to mankind. They were to subdue the earth and have dominion. And remember how the animals were paraded before Adam in Genesis 2 where he categorized and named them all? They just came to him. Well, now there's enmity. Now animals are skittish of people. And that doesn't mean that the domestication of some animals, like dogs, is impossible. It just means it's the exception. It's not the rule. This passage is describing the norm. It means that our sin has actually affected the whole created order from the ground to the groundhogs. Romans 8 says creation is groaning under the curse. Animals will be in fear of you. Animals can be food for you. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. You say, was that not the case before this? I don't know. Apparently not. It seems like a change. It seems to be saying that now you you don't have to eat meat, vegetarians, 
but you can eat meat, and many of us praise God that he allows us to eat meat. If God wanted us all to be vegetarians, he wouldn't have made meat so delicious. But there is a qualification, verse 4, you shouldn't eat all the blood with the flesh that you eat. And that doesn't mean you can't enjoy a rare steak. It means that, number one, human beings are not beasts. They don't just take animals, tear them apart, and shove it in their mouths like animals do. And number two, this is establishing a principle, life is in the blood. Again, another principle that's drawn out through the whole Bible, you think of life in the blood as it's fleshed out in the Levitical sacrificial system, but then how that principle shows up again in Christ's sacrifice and how the book of Hebrews unpacks it in Hebrews 9 and 10. You can read it there. Life is in the blood. We needed someone who came in the flesh to die for us that we might be saved because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin because God wants to protect that. Life in the blood. He says, you don't eat animals like animals eat animals. And animals must give a reckoning for harming you, it says in verse 5. Later on in Exodus 21, God would explain that when When an ox gores a man, you kill the ox. It says there, man, woman, slave, free, it matters not. If they're killed by an ox, the ox is dead. And the same applies to human to human relationships in the second half of verse 5. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here we have the blessing of life in a post-fall world. Here we have God's protection of human life in a world that anticipates the possibility of And the problem of murder. Remember Cain killed his brother in Genesis 4. And Cain's, Abel's blood rather, it cried out to the Lord from the ground for justice. Remember Lamech in chapter 4. He was the kind of guy who would kill a man who only wounded him. Remember how Lamech celebrated his 77-fold revenge on anyone who would mess with him. He was the kind of guy who, if you punched, he'd kill your village. Remember from Genesis 6 that right before the flood, the earth was filled with violence. And so the flood... Though the flood provided a kind of reset on humanity, it was still with sinners. Those whose hearts are still evil, even from their youth. And so God here establishes the sanctity of human life. There's a theological reason why the murder of a human being is different than the murder of an animal for food. Man is made in God's image. It says, for God made man in his own image. There is something like it being a reflection of being against God to murder a human being made in his image. Thus, God establishes a pattern of reckoning that's to to take place when a, a life is taken by another human being. We do call that capital punishment these days. You might not like the idea. You might argue that it has been done poorly at times, and I would agree. It has indeed been done mistakenly at times, and that is a tragedy. We can debate those kind of things, and we should indeed insist on the certainty 
of guilt before execution is even remotely considered of anyone. But we really can't argue with the theology of capital punishment since it's here, spelled out, given to us by God himself. And it is precisely because God prizes human life that the punishment for taking human life can be set so high. Let me say that again. This is the theological principle behind capital punishment. It is precisely because God so prizes human life that the punishment for taking human life can be set so high. God hates murder. Do we? I mean, do we really? We don't want to be murdered. Most of us haven't murdered. Most of us look down upon murder. We frown upon it. That's unfortunate. We say it's bad. Are we grieved by it? I saw on Twitter last night that Albuquerque just crossed 100 homicides for 2021. We normally hover around the 70 to 80 mark for a year. And with six weeks left in this year, we're over 100. Of course, cities like Chicago and Portland are, are seeing their homicide records obliterated. But those aren't just records. Those aren't just stats. Those aren't just graphs that you can find on the internet. They're not just indications that you might want to try to move to Mayberry now. Those are lives. Those are people. People with names. Those are image bearers with moms and dads and sometimes kids. A few years back here in Albuquerque, we had the discovery of 11 female bodies in the West Mesa. Remember that? It's on Wikipedia, the West Mesa murders. They were discovered to be oh, what we call these days women of the streets. Their killer was targeting women, a certain kind of woman, perhaps thinking that their kind, that with their kind, their absence would go noticed a little Less. But all 11 were image bearers with names, with moms and dads. Their killer has never been discovered, and their blood cries out from the West Mesa. New Mexico has some of the loosest abortion restrictions in the world, I mean, meaning. We barely have any restrictions. By the way, Schroeder's, New Mexico's a great place to live. <laughs> just, just now realizing that's not a great sales pitch so far, but I won't even bring up schools. That's a different matter. Uh, we don't need to just pick on New Mexico. The U.S. aborts 800,000 babies per year. And while God's grace can forgive any mother's sin, it is sin. It's not just a, a woman's choice. It's not just her body, her choice. It's not just health care. Our society continues to get more and more comfortable with assisted suicide. They euphemistically call it dying with dignity. And some defend that practice by showing how much money it can save us on health care. We should grieve at that. There are countless video games available to our kids, and some dads play it with their kids. Where killing is pure sport, where one's score is actually body counts. 
Is it any surprise that almost every instance of mass shooting in our country has had a shooter who was into such games? And then you consider that Jesus in the New Testament says that hatred is essentially murder in the heart. And then all of a sudden we can't feel comfortable merely pointing the finger out there at all those who do those things. It's us. Genesis 9 tells us that God takes human life very seriously, and so should we. And we should be thankful for when our governments, our laws, our courts, and potential punishments, when those things keep people from evil, and when those things, when those entities punish evil justly. Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, actually gives us the seedlings of human government. Just read Romans 13 again later on and see how it explains and applies the very principle of Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6. But we must move on. Fourth theme is a new and renewed covenant. A covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. You might have a homeowner's association covenant. And it means you can't grow weeds too much, too long. In marriage, a man and a woman, they enter into covenant together and they promise certain things to each other. And there are several covenants in the Bible. These are covenants between God and people. The first was with Adam. Hosea calls that relationship in the garden a covenant. God later in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 will make a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. Or you think of the covenant that God made with the Israelites in the days of Moses and then throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Or you think of when Jesus comes and he inaugurates the new covenant, which Talia read to us about from Jeremiah 31, where it was foreseen. foreseen rather. That's the new covenant, but here is a new covenant of sorts. It's a renewed covenant as well. We call it the Noahic Covenant. A covenant made with Noah and his offspring and the earth, hence all of us. It's a covenant that's still in effect today. Now the terms of that covenant have already been addressed in the verses we discussed already. But now in verse 9 and following, we get explicit covenantal language. Verse 9, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you with every living creature. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. That's the covenant. It was promised back in chapter 8. Now it's spelled out specifically as the covenant that God is making. It is an unconditional, unilateral covenant. Notice two times, verse 9 and 11, God says, I establish my covenant with you. It's God initiated, God designed, God enacted it, God accomplishes it. God alone will be the one who can fulfill the terms of this covenant to no longer flood the earth with water again. It's unconditional and unilateral, it's universal. It's with every living creature, verse 10, or verse 16, all flesh that is on the earth. God has covenanted with all humanity, and that covenant is still in play today. We could say it's an unending covenant. Well, practically unending, right? It is for future generations. It is an everlasting covenant 
But remember, chapter 8, verse 22, it's while the earth remains. Remember, 2 Peter 3, the fact that God destroyed the earth with a flood once doesn't mean he won't destroy this earth with fire one day. Indeed, he will. But this Noahic covenant thing, it, it dawned on me this, w- this week that this is a wonderful inroad for the gospel with non-Christians. We as Christians want to share our faith. We want to share the gospel. And we're looking for ways to do that, looking for inroads to bring it up. How about saying this to a non-Christian friend? Did you know you are already in a covenant with God, like it or not? And you benefit from it. The fact that this world isn't destroyed right now is part of a covenant that is found in Genesis 9. Did you know that? Let me tell you more. Did you know that this covenant will last until the end of time? Did you know that there is a sign for this covenant? It's the rainbow. It says in verse 13 that the sign of this covenant will be the bow in the cloud. It's a rainbow. Rainbows likely existed before the flood, but they took on a new significance after the flood. And those rainbows take on new significance later on, don't they? (laughs) In our culture, yes, they mean something else, but in all that mess, let's not lose their original significance and importance in God-given design. God pointed to the rainbow as a reminder that he won't flood the earth again. Isn't that what a, a rainbow is? When does it show up? After the rain. A rainbow literally signifies the rain stopped. Can you imagine Noah and his family on the first good storm after the flood? I mean, you, with bated breath, you'd be waiting for it. To, is it going to go on? 150 days again? Will God flood the earth again? No, it stopped and there's a rainbow It reminds you, he said in covenant that he wouldn't do that again. Every rainbow is still a God-given reminder that this covenant of Genesis 9 is still in effect. God is still restraining his judgment. God is still being patient and delaying a universal judgment. There's actually no Hebrew word for rainbow. That's why it's called here the bow in the clouds. What kind of bow? Well, think of a bow and arrow, and that's the shape of rainbows. It is a bow after the rain. It is a bow in the clouds, and it would seem then that a bow in the clouds signifies that God has hung up his bow. His bow is no longer right now pointed at you, but it's hung up on his mantle. At least for now, as long as this creation remains, and in light of that patience, preserving grace of God. We should be fruitful and multiply. We should treat animals well, even if we treat them delicious. We should treat each other well, treating others with dignity and worth because they're made in God's image, however small, however old, however culturally insignificant they seem to be. In light of God's patience and preservation, let's set up good governments that provide pockets of civility and peace and prosperity. And let's try to improve the ones that we have. It goes back to Genesis 9. And let's remember what God said. Let's remember every time we see a rainbow. Let's do so much more than marvel at their radiance and beauty. Let's remember Genesis 9. Let's remember that God remembers. God remembers. Did you catch that? The rainbow 
is so that you would remember that God remembers. It says, when I see the bow in the cloud, I will remember. Remember chapter 8, verse 1? God remembered Noah, and that was the turning point in God withdrawing the waters and fully saving his people. And here he says, I will remember my covenant. Of course, God needs no reminders. He's not forgetful. This is an anthropomorphism. It's giving us something in the form of man. It's how it works for us. What it really means is that God will not forget. What it really means is that God will put into action what he's already promised. It's all through the Bible. I keep finding that phrase that God remembers. I will remember my covenant with you. Exodus 2, God remembered his people when they were in slavery. The cry in the Psalms so often is, Lord, remember your people. Or how about the thief on the cross who said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He wasn't saying merely, don't forget about me. He was saying, Lord, save me. Lord, do something for me. And yet, in the new covenant, we're banking on a God who, at least in some ways, for some things, he doesn't remember. I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. The Noahic covenant is important for God's preservation of humanity and his patience with us. We should put it to work. But we need a better covenant than that. The Noahic covenant was given precisely because sin would continue and we need a covenant where our sin would instead be covered, forgotten, removed and God does that in the new covenant on account of Jesus's death and resurrection there at the cross these themes of of sacrifice and blessing and and grace on account of sacrifice these all meet at Jesus and his death and resurrection We can't be saved through something like a rainbow. You had to be saved with something not so pretty, something more deadly. A cross will do, and the Son of God on it. We need to remember that. That's what Jesus said at the Last Supper. He gave them a meal of remembrance. This is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just like the Noahic covenant had a sign, the rainbow, so in the new covenant we have two signs actually, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism. Both are signs They signify what Jesus has done for us. And baptism, by the way, also takes us back to the days of Noah and the flood. We've made a number of connections to the New Testament over the last couple of weeks from Noah and the flood. Here's one we haven't mentioned. Maybe you knew it was coming on Baptism Sunday. It's in 1 Peter 3 when it speaks of a time when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which eight persons were brought safely through the water. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to that, now saves you. It It doesn't save you by the action of baptism. It signifies salvation. Peter goes on, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I can't explain all that that passage is saying and all that it's not saying, but the gist of it is this. Water 
has often represented God's judgment and salvation. And just like God brought Noah safely through those waters of judgment in Genesis, so the death and resurrection of Jesus was actually him, metaphorically, going through the waters of divine judgment for us. And baptism hitches a soul to him and that work. It identifies with him. It identifies specifically with his death and resurrection. That's why you'll see in just a bit four people who will go down into the water like death. And they will come up out of the water like resurrection, signifying their identity with Jesus' death and resurrection and also signifying to the whole watching world they are now a whole new creation in Christ. The old is buried and the new is alive. Or if all that is just too complicated for you, Peter just puts it rather simply, just two verses before. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. That's our hope. That's how we get into the new covenant. That's a better covenant a covenant where God will not remember our sins ever, anymore, settled. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for amazing grace. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our Shepherd, our King, and our Lord. Lord, we pray that you would Apply the, these words to our hearts, and Lord, we would uh, watch these baptisms with great joy and, uh, and belief and trust in you and thankfulness for what you've done. Help us to sing first, and then we'll enjoy these baptisms, Lord. Help us to sing to your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.